I'm Vicky Butler-Henderson and my whole life has been shaped by motor racing. Back in the mid-70s, one of my earliest memories was when two men crossed swords and became legends in the glamorous, high-octane world they were part of. There was just something about that year. A great deal of it was to do with the, you know, the circumstances of, of Lada's accident and then the going right to the final race to resolve the title. The first of those men was a tough, ice-cold Austrian, super-fast in a racing car and at just 23 had caught the eye of motor racing's most glamorous outfit. I did not understand why Ferrari is not able to produce a competitive car compared to all the British teams, which were winning more or less all the races. This really gave me the kick to say I have to come here, use the facilities because they're more than anybody else, and uh, it must be easy to get the car competitive. Nigel Roebuck has been covering Formula One for over 40 years. And when he went to Ferrari, they were lost, frankly. What they needed was orderliness and discipline and somebody taking charge of things. And Nicky Lauda, by insisting on orderliness and discipline, got things right. Lauda cruised to the 1975 World Champion. When he went to Ferrari, they were lost, frankly. What they needed was orderliness and discipline and somebody taking charge of things. And Nicky Lauda, by insisting on orderliness and discipline, got things right. Lauda cruised to the 1975 World Championship in his Scarlet Ferrari 312T. Britain had no answer, unless something could be made of a blonde-haired rebel from Surrey. Author and design critic Stephen Bailey remembers his first glimpse of an unlikely British hero. It was a Formula 3 race on television, live, and James Hunt was one of the drivers and there was a coming together and both the drivers went off. They both got out of the cars and James Hunt just biffed <laughs> the other drive. And I thought, goodness me, there's something really rather interesting um, going on here. Already he's the golden boy of British motor racing, the man the experts are certain will carry on the great deeds achieved by Sterling Moss, the late Graham Hill, Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart. Ladies and gentlemen, James Hunt. British drivers and British cars for that matter have dominated uh, Grand Prix racing and our domination has dropped off a little bit now. I just feel very ambitious to take up the cudgels, you know, to take up where they left off and put us back on it. I mean, we've got quite a few... Uh, Foreigners winning winning races at the moment. Too many of the damn yeah. foreigners winning. Yeah, it's foreigners. It, it won't do, will it? It will not do, no. Right. As Lauda was catching the eye of Formula One's top brass, Hunt was crashing cars and crashing parties. His fondness for fast cars and fast women soon drew him to a man who shared James's appetite for fun and speed. In Formula Three, he was known as Hunt the Shunt. It seemed pretty unlikely that he was ever going to get to Formula One until he stumbled on a like-minded spirit, uh, no less a person than Lord Alexander Hesketh who was as outgoing, as extrovert, as free-spirited as James was in his way and had got an enormous amount of money, which he wasn't at all reluctant to spend. Uh, and Alexander Hesketh said, well, it probably won't cost us any more to do Formula One, so let's do that. In 
It's interesting to look back now to that time when Bernie Eccleston, who now runs the sport and is worth over $4 billion, was just beginning his master plan and transformed Formula One into the global industry it is today. Hunt and Hesketh stood out as the last amateurs as the sport was beginning its journey towards maximum commercial exploitation. Carrying no sponsors, the car had a patriotic red, white and blue livery as Lord Hesketh and his team of merry men shook the establishment with a sensational win, beating louder in the 1975 Dutch Grand Prix. Hunt the Shunt was now one of the best drivers around. It didn't change his attitude, though. Uh, I can best describe him as a free spirit. He wasn't like the rest of us. Things that mattered to the rest of us didn't matter to James. He was glamorous, he was good-looking. He did what he wanted to do. He was his own man. He smoked too much, he drank too much. He was very fond of the girls, to put it mildly, but they were very fond of him, to put it mildly. With a badge sewn on his fireproof overalls that read, Sex, the breakfast of champions, James Hunt carried echoes of Spitfire pilots of the past, irresistible charm and wit, and very, very fast. It's kind of quite hard now, I think, for people who weren't there at time to appreciate just how much of a sort of almost rock star image James had at the time. Perhaps part of his appeal to those who had never watched motor racing before was that Britain longed to be reminded of past glories. In the face of economic and political uncertainty at home and decreasing influence abroad, inflation was 23% in January 1976. This was a time when old certainties were falling apart. Stephen Bailey. James Hunt came to global prominence at about exactly the same moment the Sex Pistols came to global prominence. And there we are, and then you have two different poles of, you know, of English existence. Neither the Sex Pistols nor James Hunt really owed much to anything. They were determined to be their own people and to write their own rules. Nigel Roebuck. It was a glamorous life. He was driving Formula One cars, doing it very well, winning races. On the face of it, he presented a dream life to, to a great many people. Formula One legend, Murray Walker. James was always in the public eye. His wife, Susie, left James uh, to go off with and then marry Richard Burton. So it dramatically affected the attitude of the British public to motorsport in general and to Formula One in particular. Tabloid culture has changed with, you know, with the changing media opportunities. The media opportunities in the mid-70s were so much more restricted than they are today. Old-fashioned heroes... Even, even badly behaved old-fashioned heroes like Richard Burton, Barry Sheet and James Hunt, you know, could, could achieve a genuine sort of celebrity and a genuine sort of stature. Away from the parties, there was a small matter of the racing. Hunt had left Hesketh when the cash ran out and joined championship challengers McLaren. The 76 season continued when 1975 left off. World champion Nicky Lauda took the flag in the South African Grand Prix to open up a massive 12-point lead. Lauda won in Brazil, South Africa, and took second in Long Beach, USA. Hunt ran Lauda close in South Africa, and although it was his only points finish, he struck his claim to be the thorn in Lauda's side. 
it's as if somebody wrote the script. It's like Biggles versus the Red Baron, and it's like you know, the head of school versus von Richthofen. It, it, it is two great you know, mythic forces um, coming together. But, but, but the, sub, the sort of subtext of that is that Formula One in about 76 was itself on the cusp from having hitherto been a sort of gentlemanly sport with a, with, a, with a technical aspect to becoming the sort of turbocharged sort of global medium it is today. And that's part of the extraordinary poetry and drama and excitement of, of the 76 season. But then the championship took the first of a series of twists. Before the Spanish Grand Prix, Nicky Lauda was driving a tractor. No, I turned over a tractor at home a big three-ton tractor and uh, rolled it and I was lucky to stay alive and broke three ribs. The pain was hard and I started the race. Hunt then overtook me and I did not see him coming and when I turned into the corner after the straight he was right next to me and I had to pull left to avoid the crash and then I had a pain like you do not believe because I was not moving my body in the right direction. And when I got out of the car, unfortunately, my ribs were turned inwards towards my lung. And Dungle then had to take me to the hospital and fix all that again. I'm not ready to go on the telly. Can you get the water over there? Congratulations. How much did you got in hand? Well, I had to work very hard for the first half of the race. I thought Nicky was very brave. You know, he drove really well. Hunt was finally a winner with McLaren, but his joy was short-lived. Lauda won again in Belgium as Hunt's gearbox broke and another win on the streets of Monte Carlo gave Lauda a 33-point lead. As the teams went deep into the Kent countryside for the British Grand Prix in front of 80,000 fans at Brands Hatch, the record-breaking summer temperatures exceeded 95 degrees Fahrenheit. Of course, summer of 76. Steamy days went on and on and on without end, and, and that was that was one such. It was it was hot as hell. And the cars lining up nicely, pole position men, Nicky Lauda, then James Hunt. He was yeah, on a, on a, a bit of a high, and of course here we were at the Brands Hatch, the British Grand Prix. There was there was a sellout crowd, and there was a passionate desire to see James win. And the country, to a great degree, had got Hunt mania. At the first corner of the first lap, there was a multiple accident. The race was stopped. James's car was damaged. And for a time, it looked as though the race would be restarted, you know, without him. That first corner was Paddock Hill Bend. And I know how tricky it is with its blind turn-in and adverse camber. On that Sunday, amid the dust and tyre smoke, Hunt McLaren went bouncing over one of the Italian cars. In the carnage and confusion, it looked like the British hero was out of the race. The stewards decided that James Hunt wasn't going to be allowed to restart the race. And I was there because I was the BBC's chap in the pit lane. Murray, what is the news from the pits? I'm right with James Hunt now. Is making. I'm literally behind him, and I'm getting into his car. James, can you tell us what happened? Well, I know, this is a race okay, there, no, no news. James, race James stewards Hunt found that when the race was stopped, Hunt's car had not completed a full lap, and the rules stated that he would have to miss the restart. The British crowd did something that I have never seen before and wonder whether I'll ever see again. Uh, they went absolutely berserk with rage, 
at the thought of their hero James Hunt being excluded from the restart and they were throwing cans onto the circuit and baying and shouting and the stewards took fright and decided all right that James could take part. To the delight of the sun-baked masses, Hunt took the restart and chased down Lauda's Ferrari in one of the decade's iconic sporting thrillers. And James Hunt is now right behind Nicky Lauda level. Yes, right behind Nicky Lauda and looking as if he'd like the inside position to outbreak Nicky Lauda. Did he do it? We wait till they come out from behind the trees. No, not quite. Oh, yes, he's there. It, yes, it was the most remarkable day. I mean, it was uh, highs and lows all the way to sort of top it all off. He took the checker flag. He won the race. Cheering crowds and summer days can eclipse the harsh truth of motor racing. Even today, death can stalk the racetracks. By the time of the British Grand Prix in 1976, nine races had occurred and nobody had been killed. This was considered a minor miracle. Since the World Championship began in 1950, 38 drivers had died in Formula One competition, at least one every year. Perhaps the grim conclusion was that, on the law of averages, this year, Formula One was overdue a death. The danger you had to think before, so it was very obvious that every year at least one got killed. Winner of 25 Grand Prix, Nicky Lauda. And uh, in these days, you had to make up your mind. Do you want to take chances like this? Do you want to kill yourself if you're unlucky and something goes wrong? Uh, you will be killed. Therefore, the risk is there, but I take it. And this is a decision I had to take at the time. On August the 1st, 1976, the world's best driver had to take that decision one more time. And to make things worse, it was time to go to the infamous Nürburgring, deep in the Eiffel Mountains, for the German Grand Prix. Uh, the Nürburgring was the biggest challenge for, for, for any race driver there, especially in Formula One. As the cars gathered on the grid at 1.30 today, it began to rain. The race started 40 minutes late, with all but one of the drivers on wet weather tyres. James Hunt led at the end of the first 14-mile lap, but he headed a procession of drivers into the pits to change tyres, a procession which included Nicky Lauda back in 21st place. I started the race, um, then I had to change tyres because of wet or dry, I can't remember. And then I went out of the pits in that particular lap, and then I lost my memory, even going out of the pits. So I drove for another, I don't know, 15 kilometres. Lauda crashed at 120 miles per hour, and his car burst into flames. The only footage of Lauda's crash is a silent, grainy Super 8 film. It shows his car speeding through a gentle left-hand bend before suddenly snapping to the right. The car slams into the barrier and bursts into flames. As it bounces back into the centre of the track, Brett Lunger's car can only smash into it. Speaking earlier this year at the high-tech Mercedes F1 factory in Brackley, Lauda still remembers practically nothing from the day he nearly died. If I would not have seen the accident in television because a boy who was standing in the woods filmed the whole accident, I would have never known what happened because I have no memories even today. When I saw the film the first time in the hospital uh, after the accident, I thought somebody has a huge accident here. So it was really not affecting me at all. Nevertheless, I nearly killed myself because of lung damage and flames and fire and whatever. 
So he was in the middle of the circuit, more or less, and then came the driver, Brad Langer from America, who was a former GI in the uh, Vietnam War, so he was used to, <laughs> to fight against fire. With the amount of debris and dirt and rubble on the track, there's very little I could do to take evasive action. Uh, it meant that I did uh, hit Nicky as I came through, then a second car behind me uh, ran into us as well. Commentator and longtime friend of Lauda, Heinz Pruller. So Brett Langer, Harald Ertl, uh, Guy Edwards and uh, Arturo Merzario from Italy uh, helped Nicky out of the car. Uh, I was able to climb up on top of his car and pull him out by his shoulder straps. We got him to the side of the road as quickly as possible, but uh, we're still waiting for word now. It wasn't long before uh, the drivers started coming back to the pits. And I remember going to talk to Chris Amon and I said, you know, what's the situation? Champion Nicky Lauda was helicoptered to hospital from the notorious Nürburgring circuit this afternoon after his Ferrari had... And he just said, I said, you know, they're saying he's just got light injuries, light burns. Chris said, there's no way he's just got light injuries. He said, you know, he, I, he was in that car for a hell of a time. But I was sort of half dreading putting uh, the radio on in the car the next morning uh, because I was sort of expecting to hear that he'd died during the night. At one stage in the hospital, and I must say it was good to crash in Germany because the, the medical facilities were really good, but there was a, a stage where I thought it is my body cannot cope with all this. So I saw myself falling backwards into a big hole. Felt like a great relief uh, because I think of the pain and pressure my body was under. And uh, then I got frightened. I said, shit, you know, you're going to die. Then I was asked by a nurse if I want the last ride. And I remember very well, I said, can't be bad now because if there's anything up there, I will use everything to keep me alive. So I nodded because I couldn't see anything or talk, I could only listen. And then nothing happened and um, I felt something on my right shoulder and then suddenly I realized that the priest was always there, gave me the last right and left without speaking to me because I expected somebody to say God will help you or, or whatever. So that really annoyed me. And uh, I said now is enough. Now I really will fight for my life. We knew that evening that, in fact, um, he'd been burned badly. And as well as that, there were, there were serious burns to his face. People wondered, well, if we do see him again, if he does come back, you know, is it, what's he going to look like and, uh, you know, and everything else. With Lauda in hospital, the championship moved on, sentiment on hold, to Lauda's home circuit in Austria. Hunt could only manage fourth, but was back on track in Holland at the Zandvoort circuit, scene of his first Grand Prix win. With Hunt now just two points behind Lauda and with the Austrians surely out for the year, the pundits were giving Hunt the championship. Nigel Roebuck. Rumours began to circulate that Nicky might be coming back and coming back way, way, way earlier than might have been imagined. And then sure enough came the announcement that he was going to return at, uh, at Monza. The bravest thing I've ever seen in motor racing and... and and I, I think you'd struggle to find anything to do to rival it in any sport. Monza is the circuit above all else which absolutely reeks with atmosphere and tradition and Italian emotion. And I say Italian emotion because not only are the Italians absolutely fanatical about Formula One, but they are super fanatical about Ferrari. 
and Nicky Lauda was driving a Ferrari and he was making his return to racing, still in a dreadful state physically. I'm quite sure that nowadays he would not have been allowed to start. Uh, he had a crash helmet that specially made that was much bigger than the others because of his head injuries and his bandages. I thought a long time about it and I said, yes, I want to continue to race because this is my life, this is my challenge. I took that decision, then I trained hard as much as I could to be ready in Monza and do a comeback, which was only five weeks later. He actually finished fourth in the race, which was inconceevable and unbelievable. And when he took his helmet off, his balaclava was soaked in blood. I left the press box and went down to the, uh, to the Ferrari pit and I, and I watched him take off his helmet and uh, very, very sort of gingerly start to peel his balaclava off because it was, it was stuck to his face because the, the balaclava had, had rubbed against the, you know, the raw wounds, if you like, from the burns and, and was stuck with blood. And of course, louder being louder, you know, eventually having done that for a few seconds, just sort of <laughs> the hell with it and just dragged it off and to see his face that day and to think this guy has just finished a Grand Prix in the points it defied belief almost Amidst the wrangling and in the face of the Italian crowd's support for Ferrari the ever-temperamental hunt was rattled and crashed out After the carnage in Germany nobody expected this In just over a month Lauda had gone from death's door to being back in contention for the championship not only that, Ferrari had challenged Hunt's win at the controversial British Grand Prix. Hunt was stripped of his Brands Hatch win and now trailed the recovering Lauda by 17 points. They didn't just try and put us out of the race. They also attempted to humiliate us by putting us at the back of the grid and trying to make us make idiots of ourselves, which is very difficult not to do from there if you're trying to charge. You see it, do you, clearly, as yourself against Ferrari now? It's no. become that, has it? No, Harry. I, you see, I, I see it as myself getting on racing, and that's how I want to see it. And I see it myself, I would like to see it as myself having a battle with Nicky. But it wasn't all over. Hunt was peerless in Canada and at the daunting Watkins Glen circuit in upstate New York, taking a brace of wins in North America. The world was now set for a showdown in Japan as the season headed for a climax for the inaugural Japanese Grand Prix. The hero figure comes from outside into this into this battling incestuous tribe that is Ferrari with, with, with great valour and dignity and steel. He sorts it out. It is on the, on the verge of achieving a great victory when a calamity of, of, uh, of the gravest dimensions occurs. And then he returns, literally returns from the dead, only to be vanquished by the, the blonde-haired, insouciant Englishman. Japan's Fuji Grand Prix racetrack, where Britain's James Hunt and Austrian Nicky Lauda will battle it out for 73 laps, nearly 200 miles, for the Formula One championship title. Lauda, the reigning champion, is leading Hunt by three points and going all out to hold on to his title following his incredible recovery from the recent accident in which he was very badly burned. The circuit was flooded and the race director and all drivers said we cannot race. So we were sitting two or three hours waiting, but uh, Bernie and the Japanese race director turned up at four in the afternoon and said, guys, we're going to start the race because at six is dark. The whole thing is televised. And they're away. 
British fans tuning into the BBC's coverage in the early hours of Sunday the 24th of October saw Hunt's red and white McLaren twitching in the spray and gloom ahead of the field and into a barnstorming lead. As Hunt pulled away in the monsoon conditions, back down the field, Lauda was showing a different kind of courage. I decided uh, with Fittipaldi, Pace, two or three other guys, that there's no way we should race under these crazy conditions. So therefore I only did one lap and stopped like four other guys did. But I really stopped because of the stupidity of the race director there, not because of the accident or whatever. The Ferrari people um, wanted to sort of create a story, a reason for his retirement, and they were sort of they were going to invent some problem with the car. And I said, Nicky wouldn't have it. He just said, No, 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 that's not the nothing wrong with the car. I'm stopping because I'm stopping because I don't think we should be racing in these conditions. Typical, typical louder. And it took a lot of bravery to get out of the race and probably to sacrifice the world championship. So I would say Nicky was the bravest uh, of, the, of them all when, because he had, he had the courage uh, to be a coward. For Hunt, Lauda's extraordinary retirement meant nothing unless he could finish fourth or higher. And as he fell to third with a handful of laps remaining, he suffered a puncture. Heinz Pruller was watching from the track's press centre. Hunt had a tyre change and was dropping back to fifth. And he needed to be third minimum with the points uh, to beat Nicky Lauda for the World Championship. So he was fifth. So he was two places behind the world title. He mashed the accelerator and set about making up the two places he needed to be world champion. He passed Frenchman De Paillet and Australian Alan Jones. Running on anger and determination, he finished the race. But had he done enough? He went onto the pits after when the race was over and was shouting at Teddy Mayer, who was then the team boss of, uh, of McLean. And poor Teddy, who was a small chap physically, with James towering over him, was bleating away that James had actually finished third and therefore won the World Championship. And it took him a long time to get through. James Hunt is world champion. He's finished third. He's beaten Nicky Lauda by one point. It was pretty overwhelming. I mean, I can remember, the, you know, the, when they staked out Heathrow, you know, waiting for James, the, the conquering hero, to, you know, to come back. And, in fact, he uh, subsequently told me that, in fact, well, actually, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I was, I was so pissed I don't really remember a lot about it. <laughs> He was, he, was, he was like no other. As Lauda left the circuit, he began to wonder if James had hit trouble in all the chaos. He could still be champion. Nicky Lauda. The radio stopped and I asked the Japanese driver, what the hell's going on here? And he said, it's the tunnel. So then we turned up at the departure building and there was the Ferrari importer who wanted to say goodbye to me now and I saw on his face that uh, I have not won the championship. And um, James did a good job and beat me by one point, which I liked anyway, because the only one uh, who should beat me was James, because I liked the guy. 1976 was the year that boosted Formula One's popularity towards the mainstream sport it is today. Lauda's courage remains one of sport's greatest demonstrations of the possibilities of human determination. In Hunt, it gave us perhaps a final glimpse of a particular sporting hero, the amateur who lives out our dreams. 
Formula One isn't the only sport to have changed almost beyond recognition in the last 40 years or so. Football, rugby, cricket, tennis are all unrecognisable from the terraces, punch-ups, sideburns and wooden rackets of yesteryear. But in 1976, Nicky Lauder and James Hunt wrote their names in sporting history because they were the bravest of men, with reserves of courage and honesty, which they revealed not for the cameras, but because each one demanded it of the other. A great deal of it was to do with the, you know, the circumstances of, of Lauder's accident and then the going right to the final race to resolve the title. The first of those men was a tough, ice-cold Austrian, super fast in a racing car and at just 23 had caught the eye of motor racing's most glamorous outfit. I did not understand why Ferrari is not able to produce a competitive car compared to all the British teams which were winning more or less all the races. This really gave me the kick to say I have to come here, use the facilities because they're more than anybody else and uh, it must be easy to get the car competitive. Nigel Roebuck has been covering Formula One for over 40 years. And when he went to Ferrari, they were lost, frankly. What they needed was orderliness and discipline and somebody taking charge of things. And Nicky Lauda, by insisting on orderliness and discipline, got things right. Lauda cruised to the 1975 World Championship in his Scarlet Ferrari 312T. Britain had no answer, unless something could be made of a blonde-haired rebel from Surrey. Author and design critic Stephen Bailey remembers his first glimpse of an unlikely British hero. It was a Formula 3 race on television, live, and James Hunt was one of the drivers, and there was a coming together and both the drivers went off. They both got out of the cars, and James Hunt just biffed. <laughs> the other drive and I thought goodness me there's something really rather interesting um, going on here Already he's the golden boy of British motor racing the man the experts are certain will carry on the great deeds achieved by Sterling Moss the late Graham Hill Jim Clark and Jackie Stewart Ladies and gentlemen James Hunt British drivers and British cars, for that matter, have dominated uh, Grand Prix racing and our domination has dropped off a little bit now. I just feel very ambitious to take up the cudgels, you know, to take up where they left off and put us back on it. I mean, we've got quite a few uh, foreigners winning, winning races at the moment. Too many of the damn yeah. foreigners winning, yeah. That is foreigners. It, it won't do, will it? It will not do, no. Right. Experience it. In some cases, have here in the studio, 